Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I'm excited to welcome Steve Haro, Executive Vice President of Government Affairs at Televisa Univision, the world's leading Spanish-language media company. In his current role, Steve oversees all policy, advocacy, and political work for the company, which is appropriate because Steve has spent more than two decades at the center of policymaking and politics. Born and raised in California, Steve came to Washington and started his staffer journey in the office of then-Congressman Javier Becerra, where he was press secretary at the beginning, but ended up serving in several roles. Steve also has Senate experience. He served as chief of staff for Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico and the late Dianne Feinstein, senator from California. When Steve and I recorded this episode on September 15th, it was before Senator Feinstein passed away. So he and I decided to connect again afterwards to talk about the senator's legacy. You'll hear that addendum to our conversation at the end of our episode. Steve's career took him into politics. He worked on John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004, and in 2008, he worked at the DCCC. It also took him into the Obama administration, where he served as Assistant Secretary for Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Commerce. Most recently, Steve has been in the private sector, first as a lobbyist at Millman Consulting, and for the last year at Televisa Univision. Anyone who knows Steve knows how sincere, thoughtful, intelligent, and good-hearted he is. I am so pleased to say that all of those qualities come through in today's interview. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed getting to talk with Steve. Steve Haro, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. What a, a thrill to be with you. What an honor to be a, a guest with you, given the type of guests you've had uh, and the success you've had with this. So really appreciate being on with you, bud. Oh, the honor is mine. Um as you probably know from uh, listening to some past episodes, I really like to start with my guests by asking where they grew up and what home life was like. I am a native Californian. Uh, I grew up in greater Los Angeles. Everyone says they're from Los Angeles, but I, I wasn't actually in Los Angeles. Uh, grew up in various places like Newberry Park, which is up out in Ventura County. I was born in Santa Monica, uh, but then most of my most of my formative years were, were in an area, uh, Glendale, La Crescenta, which is right near Pasadena. Uh, I went to high school in downtown Los Angeles um, and then went off to Chicago for school uh, for five years, undergrad and graduate, moved back to California, where I then lived in Los Angeles. Uh, and and th those are my roots. You know, I moved to D.C. February of 05, so, you know, 18 and a half years ago now. Uh, I still consider myself a Californian. And so how did you meet politics? Uh, when, when I think I know, you know, I, I happen to know the first entry on your resume, but how did you get involved and interested in politics and how did it become your profession? It was accidental. I wanted to be a journalist, actually, oh, wow. growing up. And I went to school to do so. Uh, I went to Loyola University of Chicago and part of going to a Jesuit school is the was referred to as the core curriculum. They want to make sure that you have a holistic educational experience beyond what you're just going to specifically study. And so part of that core curriculum for college was I was going to have to take three political science courses. So I started that in my freshman year uh, because I candidly wanted to get my core curriculum out of the way and get focused on communications and journalism. And and I I did pretty well in them and I I enjoyed the intellectual rigor of it. Uh, 
So skip ahead now to October of 1996. I'm a sophomore. And we're about a week out from the election. So this is Clinton-Gore. And honestly, I'd never been overly politically active, but I was 18 years old. This was going to be the first presidential election I was going to vote in. And I had joined the College Democrats. And so a, a message went out a couple of days prior to an event like, hey, we need volunteers because President Clinton is coming to Chicago to do a rally down in Daly Plaza. And he's going to do a rally. And the election was kind of a fait accompli at this point. You know, Bill Clinton was going to get reelected. Uh, and the rally was really for a young upstart running for Senate named Dick Durbin. Right. <laughs> yes. And so I, they needed volunteers. And so that was one of the only days, honestly, Jim, in college where I skipped all my classes. And I went down that morning and I volunteered with the campaign and I, I got to work with an advanced staffer. I got to shadow a secret service agent. And at, you know, long story longer, I got to shake the president's hand. Oh, and I got man. to sit in the front row of that rally. And, th and this was a massive rally. I say massive rally at the time because it was like 4,500 people in da Daily Plaza. But that was big back then. Honestly, following day, I went and changed my major to political science. Wow. And, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, kept up the communications work. I still stayed on the student newspaper and, you know, did all that. I, I was able to become editor in chief of the newspaper and everything, but, but it was really political science that I, I went whole hog into. Uh, I got a chance to intern at the white house, you know, summer between junior and senior year. And then I got my master's in it. Wow. Well, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you is how and why you kind of came up the press channel. So I, I know you know one of your first jobs in politics was with then Congressman Javier Becerra yes. of California as yes. his press secretary. Um, but now that sort of makes sense yeah. because you had this journalistic background. Yeah, no, I, I I wanted to be a journalist, and I was so prescient because I wanted to be a print journalist. <laughs> um, <laughs> that rally I, may have saved you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. No, I'm I'm very fortunate. But yeah, I I, I wanted to keep the communications aspect. Uh, you know, as I as I alluded to, I, I got to become editor in chief of my university newspaper, and I just I really still loved the media. I loved journalists. I love the research and the academic rigor that you know it, folks put behind it. And I've met some wonderful journalists, you know, in, in my day and in my career. And and so when I was looking for work uh, coming out of grad school, I was very fortunate to land a job in Los Angeles at a PR firm, but part of the portfolio of that PR, of that office was political consulting. Oh, so, okay. so it, it was like this perfect combination of doing the press releases, writing radio spots, uh, doing campaign budgets, doing political mail. Like I, I was doing it. I was doing all of that, right? Like it was that brilliant, perfect combination. And it, it and that's, that's what gave me my start. And so then Skip ahead now to August of, it would be 2001, actually. And I get my, my uh, monthly uh, Los Angeles Young Democrats newsletter in the mail. And there's an ad for press secretary for Congressman Javier Becerra. Uh, <laughs> Young people, I, that is how jobs used to be advertised. <laughs> I, I am, I, I, I'm 23 years old. I, I, I apply for it, like never thinking I'd get the job because I really have no business getting the job. Uh, and sure enough, I get a call for an interview from a, a wonderful, wonderful person who I'm still friends with her to this day, Laura Arseniega. 
uh, one thing leads to another. Then September 11th happens. Uh, and so that delayed it a little bit. But you know, sh- late September 01, early October, we'd like you to come meet the congressman. And uh, I go in an interview and I get a job offer the following day. And I start press secretary to Javier Becerra at age 23 on October 18th, 2001. Amazing. Amazing. And so you were in that role uh, for a couple of years. You also, just in terms of straight communications work, you were also Colorado communications director for the John Kerry presidential campaign. Um, And much of your work that followed had this, you know, press and communications thread throughout it. Um, My question for you, or one of them is, what is your kind of press secretary 101 advice? Press secretary 101 advice is, Trust is everything. And so you always start on the premise that you are going to be open and honest with an inquiry coming in, even if the answer means you don't have an answer and you're going to be respectful. And, and I feel that waning a little bit candidly. I do not think folks treat journalists with the level of respect that is merited. Uh, as 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 I learned coming up, be responsive as hell, even if you don't have an answer. And 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 honestly, like a, a lot of this stuff is is not just it's not just press secretary one hundred and one. It's kind of like human being one hundred and one in, in many ways. Uh, and so you know, for me, when dealing with the press, um, look, I know that they have a job to do, and I know you have to be careful. And and not that they're out to get you, but they're still trying to figure out you know the root of what they're writing about and what they're researching. So, I mean, you obviously have to be cautious, but being able to build that trust, being able to be honest with them, uh, being able to get them, yes, to like you, but to to respect you uh, is is something that I, I put a very high value on. Is there an aspect of working with the media that you like the least? So, you know, candidly, it's been a long time since I've had to work, you know, with the media, but I'm still a young man. And I'll probably say that multiple <laughs> times over this conversation because, you know, a, a lot of when I think about, you know, my experiences, it goes back a lot of years, but I'm not that old. Keep saying it. <laughs> but what I struggle with now um, in general is how diffuse it's gotten. There are so many outlets to which it is too easy to lose focus, to lose control of the message. Uh, and Unfortunately, I would also say that so many of those outlets, I wouldn't necessarily consider real journalism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yet you have to, you have to deal with it because it's out there in the ether. So not that you ever, you know, not not when I was getting started in this, did you ever truly have control, but there were fewer outlets, fewer mediums uh, by which to manage. And that's, that is, you know, nearly impossible now, I would imagine. Yeah. I, 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 I have a lot of respect for communications directors and press secretaries uh, now uh, because their job is far harder, far harder than when I was doing this in the early aughts. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and same goes from my experience as well. Um, I want to ask you about another experience that you had, and that was at the DCCC. You were the Western Regional Director. And for those who, who are unaware of how the DCCC is organized and and often how uh, campaign committees are organized. This means, Steve, you were the liaison uh, on behalf of the DCCC to 
the congressional uh, races, uh, the the candidates in the western part of the United States. So you were working very closely with those candidates and their campaign managers to get them elected. What in your mind kind of distinguished the good campaign manager from the outstanding campaign manager? The good campaign manager was the one who had command and control over her or his budget one. It is really, really hard to raise money. It was particularly much harder to raise money back then. Uh, we didn't have as much you know, small, small dollar donation, democratization of, 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 of funds and whatnot as, as we do now. And so I was always very, very impressed with the, the campaign manager who knew where every cent was and wasn't spending wantonly. On top of which, a good campaign manager, not unlike a good staffer uh, who's a manager, knows how to manage up and down, you know, does not let the stuff, uh, you know, roll down the mountain when, when stuff is not going right. Right. Um, and can be able to, you know, have those candid conversations with the candidate about what needs to, to, to be done. Yes. You want a good campaign manager to be a brilliant strategist, but you hire and pay brilliant strategists. You want, I believe a campaign manager to be a brilliant operator and tactician to get the stuff done and not just, you know, sit in his or her office and pontificate about something. You need to be able to, to, to get, to, to compel and influence your staff who are working round the clock, seven days a week to go execute. So manage the money, know how to execute. So when that cycle was over, it was the 2008 cycle, one of the candidates to get elected was a councilman from Albuquerque named Martin Heinrich. Yes. And when he came to Washington, he hired you to be his chief of staff. Yeah. Um, yeah, Having spent a lot of time uh, with staff and members in that transition, it is such a unique period of time and it is so challenging a period of time from election day to swearing in to, you know, that whole first year in office is, yeah. you know, every day, uh, I heard someone once describe it as a, as a fresh opportunity to commit political suicide. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can you, can you talk about that process, you know, what you went through and what you learned from it? Best and hardest job I ever had, you know, candidly. And, and I was, I was very fortunate just to take a quick step back about, you know, the, the decision to go over to the DCCC because you and I were, you and I were colleagues at the time, you know, you were working, yep. you were working for Rahm at the caucus. I was working for yep. Congressman Becerra, who was assistant to the speaker at the time. And so you and I got to be in those leadership meetings with Speaker Pelosi uh, and, and Chris Van Hollen was chair of the DCCC at the time. And so just yep. from a, a staffer's perspective, uh, you know, keeping with our theme, I got, you and I got exposed uh, to, to some great stuff. But then I also got exposed and created a relationship with Chris Van Hollen. And so when uh, the, the job at the DCCC actually was abrupt, it, it, it occurred in May, June of, of uh, 2008, because my predecessor, who had been there for the cycle up to that point, got an opportunity to go run Mark Begich's Senate campaign in Alaska. Ah, okay. And so that created an abrupt vacancy. I had had, uh, I had, had some... Um, Experience on campaigns, you know, as, as as you alluded to, and they needed to fill it quickly. And the West was the West was ripe. I mean, this is 2008 cycle. We had a lot of great candidates, great campaigns running in the West. And so I was asked, "Hey, can you? We don't want to do a search. Can you just jump in and do this?" Now, 
I share that because at the time I had made a determination. I'd been living now in, in DC for three years. I was, you know, running point for Congressman Becerra's leadership office. And I was also, uh, still the communications director at that point. I had also been his legislative director. To, I, I was legislative director and communications director for a couple of years. Um, but I made the determination, a, a personal goal of mine, that I wanted to be a chief of staff. Uh-huh. And so when this opportunity presented itself, I was like, okay, here, here's, here's a great opportunity to be exposed to all these potential new members to go help fight La Casa, if you will, and get some more Democrats in office and expand our majority. And the potential of them saying, hey, Steve, you're great. Come be chief of staff. That's why I did it. That, that was the risk. And that was the, you know, the discussion my wife and I had. Uh, I was just, I was newly married at the time. And so we, we made the leap and made the jump knowing that I'd be potentially out of a job, you know, come election day, you know, as I, as I will always say when, you know, cause nobody in my family or friends are in this kind of business that I grew up with. So when I try to explain, you know, what I do and, and when I was a staffer and the interest intricacies of the job, I say, well, look, my job is recession proof, but it's not election proof. And we have more elections than recessions, right? <laughs> I like that. Um, but that's, but the gamble paid off because I did meet Martin Heinrich while he was running for Congress. Uh, he ran a great campaign. He won. Uh, I got to play an integral role in advising him in his campaign during that time. Uh, and so, you know, the election year that year was November 4th, I believe. So Friday, November 7th, I'm in California dealing with a potential recount in California three, uh, at the time he calls me, uh, and says, Hey, some folks tell me I should be talking to you about chief of staff. Oh, and fantastic. I go, that's great. And he goes, can you send me your resume? And I go, can you give me an hour to update it? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I frantically update, I send it off and you know what, Jim? I mean, no joke. He calls me back 10 minutes after I send the email and he goes, yeah, I want you to be my chief of staff. And oh, so this is Friday, November 7th, 2008. We inked the deal on Saturday, Saturday, the 8th and Monday I'm running transition and, and it was awesome. And, and here's what I'll give Martin credit for. You know, I, I, you know, over the weekend part, you know, I, I wrote down, you know, some ideas, you know, I wrote down an organizational chart and I, I, I you know, just ideas for him and whatnot. And I send that off to him on Monday and we have a conversation Monday afternoon. He's like, all oh, this looks great. Go ahead and move forward. And he goes, here's the thing. I have promised nothing to nobody. You are the chief of staff. You're going to hire the staff. You're going to get them trained. I need you to do the job that you need to do so that I can do the job that I need to do. And what a great way to start off, right? Because you're right. Like, you know, that the the original premise of your question is, you know, you're trying to do everything you possibly can, you know, not to implode or explode, but that foundational setting that he instructed gave me the confidence, latitude to build for him the business that he needed around him to do his job properly. Yeah. And, you know, three of the people who you've mentioned so far, Javier Becerra, Chris Van Hollen, Martin Heinrich, they all have networks of staff who have gone on to do really impressive things. And I think it does go in part to what you've just put your finger on, which is empowerment. They've, they all have a, a real um, track record of empowering their staff to do things on their behalf. Yes. And, and to their credit, 
they have also surrounded themselves with great staffers, right? Uh, who've also empowered. Like I, I still credit, you know, I, I, I never, I, I was never Javier Becerra's chief of staff, but man, did I have two great chiefs of staff that I worked for under him. Yeah. You know, the, the, the person who found my resume originally when I applied for that press secretary role, Laura Arseniega, she's still a friend. And wow, is she just an amazing talent um, and a great person. Uh, you know, Krista Atterbury, who's my chief of staff who hired me, we, we, went to, we went to the Nationals game last Friday night together to watch Secretary Becerra throw out the first pitch. And he, and he, he, he threw a strike, man. It was awesome. Nice. Uh, so, so not just the members, but the staff that, you know, the staff that they entrusted, you know, and, and, and Chris was the same way. He had great people, you know, around him uh, that I got to learn from, uh, that I, I, I still am thankful to this day for what they did for me in, in my career. Yeah. Yeah. And look, uh, Congressman Becerra became Secretary Becerra. Yeah. Congressman Van Hollen became Senator, Senator Van, Van Hollen. Hollen. Congressman Heinrich became Senator, Senator Heinrich. Heinrich. Yeah. So go staff um, and staff empowerment. Um, okay. So you, you went through this, uh, you know, this intense period of standing up a congressional office and running it successfully uh, just a few years later, as, as I just mentioned, Senator Heinrich uh, is elected to the Senate uh, by the people of New Mexico. What advice do you have for chiefs of staff to either do or not do? Remember that you're not the principal, first and foremost. Humility first, always. Uh, remember, and, and, and critically, remember the of staff portion of your title and put less emphasis on chief and that you want to you wanna approach the staff who are working on the team with an attentive ear, with an open door, with some self-deprecating humor. To, you know, you're dealing with a lot of young, impressionable folks. Uh, you want to make sure that their experience is good because you're getting the best work product out of them if they do. You know, if you're instilling fear or if you're yelling, kicking, screaming, all you're gonna, all you're doing is just creating a hotbed for mistakes. And and so I I, I always encourage folks that it goes back to what we were talking about earlier when I was talking about how you handle journalists, right? Just be kind. Doesn't doesn't mean you're going to be a pushover. It's just listen, offer up help provide the constructive feedback, but do it in a way that's actually constructive. Uh, I'm and- so glad I asked this question of you because um, hearing you describe a leadership style that is rooted in humility, it makes perfect sense to anyone who knows you because I've had the opportunity to work with you and everyone who I know who has will describe your brilliance, your, you know, diligence, seriously, but also your humility. And it's not just a happenstance of your character. It's a leadership choice. It is. And one, thank you for saying all that. that that's very kind. I, I'll probably take umbrage with brilliance, but I, I am diligent. <laughs> and I do, I, I, I do believe that you accomplish more with the team around you by how you make them feel. And if they're feeling good, and if they're respecting you, you're going to get better work part out of it. So it's not just a state of mind; it, it's also a strategic imperative. Because in the congressional office, or just being a staffer in any any type of governmental office, you're always going to be resource poor, and so you have to make the most of the resources you have. 
And if you're running a dictatorial office where everyone's scared and walking on eggshells, when you walk on eggshells, eggshells are going to break and mistakes are going to happen. And that's a problem. Yeah. And so to get the best possible output, it's, it's funny how just being kind and being <laughs> direct and, you know, applauding wins can get the best out of your folks. Yeah. Uh, amen. Well, you and, and your staff uh, served Congressman Heinrich extremely well. As I mentioned, he, um, in 2012, is elected to the Senate, and you yep. become a Senate chief of staff. Yeah. Um, where you spent several years then, uh, uh, both in, in his office and then um, later uh, with Senator Feinstein. But let me ask you, having worked on both the House and the Senate, do you have a preference? So here's what I'll say. That when I, when I, when I am coaching folks and talking about the difference between the two bodies, I would say in the House, you vote more, but it matters less. And in the Senate, you vote less, but it matters more. And what I also found about going to the Senate versus the House was your ability as an office, your ability as a member, and thus my ability as a chief of staff to compel action was far greater when you were one of 100 than when you were one of 435. And so it became more, it became possible to get more things done at a fact that more things done that didn't involve legislation. Right, compelling, mm-hmm. you know, compelling, you know, pulling the levers of the administration to act, you know, on on, on certain things. Uh, I, I felt that we had more of that power to compel uh, than we did in the House, and so from that standpoint, you know, just for somebody who wants to get stuff done, to do right, to move the needle forward, uh, that 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 was cool. Uh, the trade-off is that in the House, there's what I'd say. A higher energy level, smaller staff, meaning, you know, so now your, your, your portfolio is, is larger. Whereas when you get to the Senate, you know, that in, in the house and you know this, but I, my, my guess is many listeners don't you, you're capped at how many employees you can have. you can only yep. have 18 full-time employees and four part-time employees. Interestingly enough, that level number was set in 1974 before the fax machine. So, you know, I, I, I got to hand it to staffers who are dealing, again, when you talk about being resource poor, yes. right, really, really ex- uh, um, overextended. But in the Senate, you're not capped at employees. You can have as many employees as your budget will allow. And so I went from a business model in the House of 17 to 18 employees to New Mexico of 45, right? And, and the larger your operations get as a manager – the smaller your tentacles should be. You are truly now managing, not necessarily doing the execution. And so that that's part of the trade-off is you can still get more done, but now you're probably not dancing in as many, you know, in, 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 in as many places as you were in the house, which doesn't make it less fun. It just it, it is it is different. So I I I'm not going to give you a straight answer that one is better than the other because each of them did have their qualities that I loved. And I miss both. I miss both. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great answer. Um, Something that I thought of as you were talking that through is, you know, one of the roles of a chief of staff is periodically when, um, and sort of before an idea is brought to the senator, it first goes, you know, through the pyramid underneath and eventually comes to the chief of staff. 
and the the you know the the policy staff um, might come in and say, "Here's a bill that we want him to sponsor or a legislative initiative we want him to lead." Um, and you have to evaluate that. Mm-hmm. What are sort what are some of the things that you would be looking for in order to feel confident that the idea was ripe and the right thing to recommend to the senator? First and foremost, for for me at least, and you know for the you know the three elected officials I worked for, um, well, two two elected officials I worked for as chief of staff, but three total. And with Javier, I was I was LD. But the, the the first thing was okay. What's the direct impact on constituents, and, and where where is this going to where and how will this affect the district? Because just because it's good policy, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it would be good for us, right? And so I, I would always pressure test that because, quite frankly, that was also you know where you know where the principals that that I worked for that would have been their first question too, and so. You know, when when I got to the Heinrich office, we actually set up some SOPs on how to evaluate letters, bills, whatnot, and it was it was a form of questions. You know, so first foremost, you know, how does it affect constituents? What's the cost? You know, who 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 else is supportive? What third parties have weighed in? It's like it 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 was it was SOP for us, but it started first and foremost with the impact on the district. That SOP, you just can't it just can't be feel good. Right. No, uh, that SOP should be, um, you know, in every member's handbook when they arrive. Seriously. I mean, you'd be surprised. I mean, a lot of people struggle to ask themselves those questions to determine the the right answer or recommendation for the boss. Yeah, it, it is necessary because it also it's a training mechanism for staff. So they know what they're going to have to answer and they're going to know. And, and they, so they know how to go. Then they learn how to research to get those answers. So it it allows for them to focus as opposed to just spewing whatever. But it's also a time management tool because eventually this is going to get to the member. And yeah, you may you may spend more time with me making your argument, but you're not going to have that much time with the member. And so you have to be thorough without sacrificing brevity. You have to create the type of trust that even though you're going to get maybe three, four, if you're lucky, five minutes to make your pitch, part of that pitch is instilling trust and confidence in your principal that, yeah, you as a staffer know far more than you're telling, but in the interest of time, you are putting the salient points to make the argument and get to an answer and that you will take care of the rest on the back end. Yep. And so that yep. is that is what I was looking for when when it reached my desk, when it reached my office you know, to, to, to get them, you know, principal ready, if you will. That's what I was looking for before we, you know, put them in front of the, the, the principal. So I know when you left uh, Senator Heinrich's office, you went to the Obama administration. And I'm going to return to that in a minute. Um, but before I do, you were also uh, later chief of staff to Senator Dianne Feinstein of California. Yeah. Um, you, as you said at the beginning, you are a son of California and you still consider yourself a Californian. And here, here you are, you get to be the chief of staff to one of only two senators of the gigantic state of California. When you got that opportunity, how did it feel? Oh, it was such a thrill. I mean, to, I remember how it happened, you know, so this was December of 2016 and I, I was, 
I was an official in the Obama administration, but I was, you know, turning into a pumpkin on January 20th. So I was, you know, looking for work and, and, uh, and there was a transition in Senator Feinstein's office where her chief of staff was going to go be staff director, uh, at Senate judiciary. And a couple people mentioned my name and I, I, I know, I, I had known Senator Feinstein, you know, through my career, but more importantly, because, uh, my better half, uh, my wife, uh, worked for Senator Feinstein before, before we were married, before we met, was one of her jobs early in her career. Um, and, and Senator Feinstein loves my wife. Uh, and so, and, uh, it's so my name gets floated and she's like, oh, I should absolutely talk to Steve. And so we're now, uh, at home with my parents in California, uh, between Christmas and New Year's as we always, we always go to, to the West coast for the holidays. And I get an interview with her. Uh, in the San Francisco office on December 28th, 2016, walk in, sit down with her, <laughs> got the job offer right there, then and there. Right. And, uh, and started a, a few days later after I returned to Washington. And it, it was a thrill for me because I am a native Californian, as I mentioned, and here I now got to represent, you know, work for and represent my state once again, like I did when I was working for Javier. But in this, but in this sense, I got to come back as a chief of staff for a California office, which from a personal office standpoint is those two offices are the lar the largest offices by budget and personnel in Congress. So, yeah. you know, as somebody who loves operations, I got to run that business and what a thrill. And to work for somebody who is an icon, literally, uh, yes. was just a, a, an amazing, amazing thrill and wonderful people who worked for her um, at the time. And, you know, prior who I got to meet, you know, in the alumni network, just, it, it, it was it was one of those just truly um, amazing things that I, I've been blessed with getting able to do. Yeah, she is. She is an icon, uh, Senator Feinstein, and a legend. Um, I also I do want to ask you about something related to your experience, um, because Senator Feinstein, like Mitch McConnell these days, um, you know, they have been the subject of public speculation about whether they're healthy enough to serve you know, in their current roles. And my observation in situations like this is that staff often have to adapt to their member as they age. Can you talk about how you as chief of staff made sure that the office could function to serve the senator and the public effectively? Sure. Uh, happy to. Uh, but let me first start off because you, you, you used the, the word accommodation, right? Uh, let me first start off and I think that I think you can appreciate this, Jim, as a, as a former staffer. Uh, as good staffers, we have to accommodate our principals. Period. No matter what, no matter their age, or no matter you know whatever whatever aspect, right? They're, these are these are humans, after all, um, and their time is valuable. Their intellect is important in terms of how they make their choices, and everyone's different, and everyone requires certain ways of, of learning. Um, everyone requires certain ways of doing their schedule. And so a good staffer is going to always look to accommodate, to create the optimal conditions that get the best out of their principal and thus the best out of staff. Uh, and so that, that, that is age agnostic, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. So candidly, what I would say in, in this situation is you just apply the same principles and you work with your principal, who yes, you know, she was in her mid mid eighties when I was when I was chief of staff at the time. So okay, so what do you need to to do this right? 
And she was she was an early bird. And so if we had to do things and make critical decisions earlier and earlier, fine. Okay. So, you know, so my morning call, you know, because every morning started off with, you know, me and her on the phone, uh, you know, and she's coming in, um, you know, before we started with staffing. So if my morning call had to move from 8 a.m. to 7.45 or we made those accommodations, you know, if, if we wanted to, uh, you know, stack meetings, you know, at, at a certain point where, you know, she was ready to go and we made it, we made those adjustments. And then candidly, if she wasn't ready to go and she needed to rest, she needed to think more. Okay. Then we adjust the schedule and we, we make the cancellations or, or I would handle it. Uh, so it's, you, you accommodate for the, the scenarios you have. Uh, and that's, that's what we did. Uh, and, and look, the benefit of the way these businesses run and you'll, you'll see a pattern. I always call these offices businesses because that's what they are. They're, they're, they're small businesses. Uh, and each, each of them are, you know, have different business models and different CEOs, if you will, and the member. Uh, benefit of these businesses is that you do have great staff helping operate them. And the member cannot execute all the day-to-day. And so you can still operate at 100% even if your member is not operating at hundred percent, it doesn't take the place. It doesn't take the place of the member, but yeah. there are still, you know, the, 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 the blocking and tackling the dogs and cats, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use there, you, you can still accomplish. You can still serve. You can still take care of folks and accommodate the needs of a members, whatever, whatever those, those accommodations would be. In this case, it was age. Yeah. Um, you know, such a good point. And anyone who has worked for multiple members can really reflect on what you said, because working with and managing upward for all of them was different because oh, each yeah. one is a different human I mean, being. When I became chief of staff to Martin Heinrich, I, I believe he was 38 years old. When I became chief of staff to Diane Feinstein, I believe she was 84 years old. <laughs> right. Different yeah. set of circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me change circumstances on you now, uh, because I skipped over your time in the Obama administration when you served as Assistant Secretary of Commerce um, uh, for Legislative and Intergovernmental Affairs. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, from, you know, my time on the Hill, you know, when I left, of course, I knew a lot about Congress. Uh, I worked on the House side and the Senate side, but I still, when I went to the White House, ended up learning quite a lot about Congress. Um, Tell me about, you know, what you learned about Congress from the perspective of the Department of Commerce. I learned more about the congressional budget process during my time as an assistant secretary of commerce in the, you know, just, I I did that role for about a a year and a half because it was uh, a spring of 15 when I was approached to do this role. Uh, And so, you know, I was, I was there by the summer uh, through the end of the, through the end of the admin before I went to go work for Senator Feinstein. I learned more about the congressional budget process in those 14, 15 months, 16 months I did that job, than I had learned in the previous 15 years working in Congress. Uh, right. Because, you know, I never worked for an appropriator uh, uh, until until Senator Feinstein and that came after Commerce. So I, I thought I kind of knew, you know, what the appropriations process looked like because I was, I was an LD and, you know, I was young and of course I know all this, you know, and I, I didn't. I didn't. I learned so much about how to properly write the appropriations budget, you know, for the, for the department, the nuances of it, I gained a far, far more increased respect for the appropriations staffers in Congress in terms of their command and control over their bills and their, and the budgets, you know, for, for the federal process. And quite frankly, I also 
that was when I really got my first sense of how to properly go advocate to Congress, be a lobbyist, if you will, than I learned in any than I learned from you know being advocated to when I was in Congress. So it yeah. was it, it was it was a wonderful lesson uh, uh, in learning about Congress, despite the fact that I had 14, 15 years as a, as a congressional veteran. Yeah. So I'm about to ask you about your experience in the private sector. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I do, when you reflect back on your time in public service, is there something you look back on specifically with a note, or, you know, a note of deep pride and think, yeah, I, I helped do that? You know, candidly, I, uh, it would not be in any type of major policy or or legislative win it it really is more for me because i loved managing i loved operations it really is about the people i i got to hire and work with and to see their professional progression uh to see how successful so many of them have become uh the pride i get when they you know still call and ask for that career advice and hey can we go have coffee and you know, ha- have a chat. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I could just. I mean, the fact that they still call me all these years later, and you know, want to get, um, get my thoughts. Uh, that that is something that I, I, I I'm truly proud about because yeah, you should. Be. I, I've I've had the good fortune to hire a lot of folks, Jim, and work with incredible people. I mean, one of the greatest things about working in Washington is just the intellectual rigor that you experience here in ways that I don't think a lot of our, our friends, um, in places around the country experience. Right. And, and so I, I, I combine that, that sense of accomplishment of being able to work with amazing talent and still having those relationships to this day, still being able to counsel them, mentor them. I combine that with also just the, the macro reality that what we do as staffers does have an effect on people. It just does. And, you know, as I used to you know, tell folks, what we're doing, it is hard to pinpoint and, and narrow down to individual people. Like we're helping people whose names we may never know, but we know we're helping a lot of folks. And I, I do truly believe at my core that that time in Congress and, the, and in the administration that we were doing that. And I, yeah. I, and I miss it. I do. Uh, but I, I, I would say that that's the accomplishment is, is, is the people. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You know, let me, uh, quickly now in the, in the time that we have left, ask you about, uh, your time in the private sector. When you left the Hill, um, you spent a couple of years in the well-respected government relations firm, Melman Consulting. And in 2022, you joined Televisa Univision as executive vice president of government affairs. Um, I have a feeling, but I, I don't know, um, you know, when the opportunity arose to work at Televisa Univision, how did it strike you? And when you got the job, how did it feel? Great and great, right? Um, I had, I was very fortunate. Uh, and I, my, my whole career has been just a whole progression of fortunate uh, occurrences and wonderful people who have approached me, wonderful staffers who dropped my name and you know, things let, you know, let it from there. Right. And getting a chance to go to, to Melman Consulting was no different. Amazing people, amazing work. Uh, I was, I was very fortunate and I, I got to work with amazing clients. Um, 
and it was it, it, it was it was fun. I mean, it really was, and I, I enjoyed my time. And I, I was not looking to leave. Uh, continuing on with the theme of fortunate, Televisa Univision was just one of those things that happened. Um, in a in a weird world of how consulting works, it happened because of a client conflict. They originally approached me about being a consultant for them, and one of our clients said, "No, that can't happen." And then a few weeks later, the executive recruiter for the EVP job gives me a call and says, "Hey, you know, your name's been, you know, your, your name was given to us. Should we talk?" And one thing led to another, and I, I got a job offer. So why did I do it? Because I was in a very good place and I wasn't looking to leave. I mean, I just wasn't. Right. I was working with wonderful yeah. people, doing amazing work. Um, why did I do it? I missed operations. I missed the business aspect of what I was as a chief of staff. Now, I don't run a very large operation now, but I'm part of a large operation. And I get to be an executive in a large operation. And, and so the appeal of that, uh, to go work for a business and to be part of that operation and to help drive that in a way that... Um, you know, you don't necessarily do that in consulting, right? You, mm-hmm. It's still very important that, that the work is still very critical because, you know, your clients, you know, they, they're going to be too busy to know everything they need to know to be able to make decisions. So you are helping inform some major decisions. But here was an opportunity to do that for a company, a, a very well-respected brand, right? A company that I, I, I know and respect that is catering to an audience that, uh, you know, like my grandfather and 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 you know sixty four million Latinos across the country, uh, the chance to do that, run a business unit, collaborate, you know, for a major international corporation, it, it was very appealing and it, still a hard decision to leave my my previous job, but it was a good opportunity for me to become an executive and get to do this work now. Is there anything now that you've spent time considerable time in in the private sector? that you think current staffers should know about private enterprise or the private sector that they may not? You know, it's a very good question. And it's something that I, I do when I'm talking to, to younger folks now on the Hill, uh, I I do share this with them because I, I I do feel, unfortunately, I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. I am a lobbyist and in my consulting firm, I was a lobbyist and for better or for worse, Mostly for worse, I think the the lobbyist term has been denigrated into a four letter word that is really undeserving, uh, because at, at at the core we are educators about issues um, and unintended consequences and other effects on macro and microeconomics that a staffer cannot fully cover because they have to cover so much, and so our work is to help enhance and inform their education on something so that they can properly educate their member on a decision. So I, I, I start at that baseline because my concern that I've seen over the years is folks eschewing that option that's available to them, denigrating the profession. Oh, I'm not, you know, you're a lot, you know, and not, not taking the opportunity to sit with a constituent business to learn about that. I mean, when I was when I was an LD, when I was a chief of staff, I saw these meeting opportunities as personal research and development, intellectual interest. I was going to learn something from it. Yes, they were going to ask me to do something, but that doesn't mean I had to say yes. But I was going to learn something from it. 
And, and I think in doing that, in taking the meaning, in asking the questions, hard and soft, it increased my ability to make decisions. It increased my knowledge of issues far more rapidly than if I had to go do the research on my own. And so I, I, I coach folks like, take the meeting. Because one, it's just good constituent service. But two, you're going to learn something that's going to make you better. And I don't feel like enough folks are doing that. Or if they're doing it, they're doing it uh, haphazardly. Uh, and I, I, I think that that is a problem. And I, I think folks should be more open-minded. All right, Steve. Um, in, the, in the interest of time, I have just two more questions for you. Um, one is one of my favorites. Uh, can you tell me about a time that you made a mistake what happened and what did you learn from it? <laughs> Mistakes happen all the time. Uh, what I tell myself is the same thing I will tell anyone that I've ever hired. You're going to make a mistake. Don't make the same mistake twice because that means you didn't learn from it. Uh, I will remember when I was a brand new LD, I did not do my due diligence properly on the co-sponsorship of a bill. And we haphazardly put my boss's name on it and the world kind of came down on us a little bit and we had to take his name off it, which requires a process that you just don't want to have to go through and have that conversation. Uh, and so that, that that's one tangible example that uh, th that mistake I never made again. Uh, but at the same time, what I will say, and you know, and I, I believe, um, you know, Pat, Patrick said this too on your on your podcast. You know, we're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes every day, right? Uh, but the the key is is do you learn from them? And I I'm very proud of the fact that I I, I do not believe I I make the same mistakes twice. Um, I've definitely fallen on my face, uh, but I I get up and and that's okay and that's okay because I have learned from them and I know I'm going to continue making mistakes be it professionally or personally with my kids and, um, and, and my wife, but, uh, but I definitely know I don't want to keep making them. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you're so right, um, about their inevitability and importance to learn from them. The other thing making them helps with is just offering grace to others, right? Mm -hmm. When they make their mistake, um, don't come down hard on them because, yeah. you know, yours is right around the corner. Yeah. And, and again, you know, going back to, you know, how you treat people, you know, yeah, it's really easy to yell, kick and scream about a mistake, but the key is what's the fix. Okay. Don't focus on the mistake. Focus first on the fix to make sure you, you, uh, you've cauterized the bleeding, if you will, and then reverse engineer what happened to make sure it doesn't happen again. And that does not need to be done in some type of crucible pressure cooker where, you know, people are sweating bullets and, and afraid because then they're maybe not concentrating on what they have to learn from it. That's right. right. Yep. Uh, so it, 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 you know, how, so, so, so not just about making mistakes, but how you, how you handle the, 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 the fix and the, the education that you get from it is, is critical right. yep. for yourself. And then also as a manager of staff. Yeah. All right, Steve, my final question for you. Um, if I were able to raise the money and get the permitting uh, necessary to build a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall, who would your nominee be? 
for the Stafford Hall of Fame? You know, I'm I'm going to give a nod uh, to my first chief of staff, Chris Atterbury. And, and I, I, I'd probably, I would like to put Laura Arseniega up there as well, uh, because okay. I was I was 23 years old. I had no business getting this job, but they saw something. And they pitched me to Congressman Becerra. He saw it, and the three of them collectively gave me this role that started me on a, a, a very blessed journey that has afforded me some wonderful opportunities, wonderful roles. I have done some amazing things in my life. And had those two not given me the opportunity, who knows, you know, what what things would look like so many years later. So I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, obviously some amazing people who have, you know, gone, you know, who've been White House chief of staffs and have, you know, become ambassadors and cabinet secretaries who, you know, started off as, you know, as we did. And, and we all know them and we all love them and they are very successful in their own right. But when I just think about your question, um, I, I think about it a little selfishly in terms of who's affected me. And, and, uh, and I'm very thankful to them for what they did to get me started. I love it. Well, Steve, I am very thankful to you, um, for making time for us today and, and, you know, sharing all of your observations with us and your stories, but more importantly, for all of your service, uh, to the country, um, to the constituents of the States, um, who you've worked for, um, truly I'm an admirer of yours and, um, I can't thank you enough. Well, right, right back at you, brother. Uh, your service also. Uh, I mean, you you got to do some extraordinary things, you know, both in Congress and the White House. Uh, you have you were a great colleague back when we were, you know, schlepping around the Capitol. You know, <laughs> those were good those days. days. Those though, were, though, good we're still days. young men. I told you I was going to repeat this. We're still young men. That's right. Uh, if we say it enough, you know, uh, say it enough, <laughs> you'll believe it. But no, <laughs> you you too, Jim, have have just been a wonderful friend over the years. Uh, you know, in, in, deeper than just a Washington friend, right? I mean given the way yeah. Washington is. And, and you are somebody who, you know, Washington's a hard place and it, it creates hard people, even if you're not hard coming in. And, and you're somebody who never became that and you're the better for it. Uh, and, and it's led you to a lot of success. And so to be able to share this hour with you to do this has been a, a true treat. And I appreciate you having me on. Right back at you. Thank you, Steve. Um, I can't wait till we talk again. Absolutely. Always. Thanks, man. Steve, since we last spoke, uh, Senator Feinstein unfortunately passed away. And the coverage of her life and leadership has, I think, rightly praised her as, as an icon and a legend for the city of San Francisco, for the state of California, for the country as a force in the United States Senate. You and I touched base shortly after the news broke because we knew that we needed to follow up our conversation. And you've had time to reflect um, on on your time with the senator, on her life and career, and reflect with other fellow staffers who worked for her. Um, so now with that time for reflection, can you talk to us about what her legacy means to you? would love to. Jim, it's so funny. I know when we first got together and, and chatted, we talked about a lot of the similarities or we've, you know, you and I have talked about a lot of similarities that you and I have. And so just in your question, you used three words, force, icon, legend. 
And it's so funny on on the day that uh, on the day that Senator Feinstein passed away, somebody reached out to me for for a comment, and my exact line, Jim, was, "She was a force and an icon, and now she's a legend." Right? Wow! And yeah. that truly is, you know, what she is, and deservedly so. You know, she is a historical figure in a way that few get to be written about, and uh, there will be a lot. To, to, to write about her first of so many things and not just for California, but for our country. And so I, I, I do one thing I, I, I do appreciate through all this, you know, for all of the stuff that was said, you know, about her with her health and, you know, the realities of taking on the job of being a United States Senator and being 90 years old and so forth and so on. Uh, she did get to, you know, with, Apologies to Frank Sinatra, kind of do it her way, right? I mean, Thursday, that Thursday, the whatever it was, the 26th or 27th, she voted on the Senate and then she passed away, you know, peacefully in her sleep that night. And, you know, it's not for everybody, but I think that's how she kind of wanted it. And yeah. so she got that. And so uh, I, I am looking forward to all the things that will be written about her. And, and consuming it. And, and I'm looking forward to uh, how people continue to focus on her legacy. Uh, and I continue to be very grateful that I got to play a, a very, very bit role uh, in that journey and that she gave me the opportunity to serve her, to serve California, to serve the Senate. Uh, and so I, I, I pivot from this point of time, very, very appreciative for all she's done for all of us, but specifically for me. You know, um, one of the, one of the hard parts, but one of the wonderful parts of our grieving process is getting together with people of the person who has passed away, right? Family members, colleagues, neighbors. And when an elected official passes away, many of the people who get together are staffers, people who used to work for that person and over a career like Senator Feinstein's, I mean, that is thousands of people, at least hundreds. I know you and your wife, Tamara, who also was a staffer for Senator Feinstein, even before you That's were, right. yeah. um, went uh, out to California. Can you talk to us about something you learned uh, from some of the stories that were shared, um, some of the histories that were given um, that either, you know, surprised you? made you laugh, made you smile, or that really landed with you in some way? Sure. And, and just a quick moment on, on Tamar, because you, you rightfully point out that you know, she worked for Senator Feinstein uh, before I did. Uh, and I want to be very clear, uh, Senator Feinstein loved my wife, and I'm pretty confident I only got the job I got to be her chief of staff because I was Mr. Tamar McGarrick. <laughs> uh, so she, you know, she just, Senator Feinstein loved my wife and, and my wife, her. And so it was a true treat for the both of us to travel to San Francisco uh, for those two days uh, of memorial services. And you're right. How many staff showed up uh, you know, from all over, all over was terrific and deserving. And, you know, to her credit, from what I understand, uh, Senator Feinstein was very clear in, in her directives uh, for, you know, how things were going to be, you know, after she passed that at her memorial service, she wanted a dedicated section for staff. And we filled it. We filled it. 
you know, staff came in from, from Washington, staff came up from Los Angeles, you know, a bunch of folks from San Francisco, all over the place. It was, it was so wonderful. And, and yes, there were stories, uh, which was fantastic. I mean, we had, you know, there were, there were alumni there from her time as, you know, board supervisor, you know, not just, you know, not just mayor and not just, you know, Washington, uh, or in the, you know, the California Senate offices, um, and so it, it was, it was wonderful, uh, to be able to be there, you know, folks got there about an hour prior. So you're just, you're just talking, you're catching up, you're, you're, you're seeing what folks are doing. And then, then alumni, uh, had a, um, we were together for a few hours afterwards, uh, you know, at a bar in San Francisco, just sharing stories. And what I, what I took from it, not, it wasn't necessarily the specific stories, but that connective tissue uh, that existed between all of us in terms of loyalty to the senator, appreciative for how she pushed us to be better. I mean, one of the, one of the great things about these jobs, campaigns, congressional offices, working in government is it basically teaches you to hit your max and then how to exceed it. And that was definitely, you know, what Senator Feinstein did for us. And that was something that I, I saw collectively uh, uh, around the table, both people I knew and worked with and people that I was meeting for the first time. And so, you know, going back to the, you know, force icon legend, uh, what I would say, not just about Senator Feinstein, but, you know, for the purposes of, of the mission of your podcast, you know, staffer, um, legends do not happen on their own. And so to see these amazing people who have done pretty incredible things during their time with Senator Feinstein or Mayor Feinstein or, you know, uh, board member Feinstein and what they're doing now just shows the quality of people. She surrounded herself, present company excluded and, and, and how they helped build that icon and how they have made this legend. And so that was just nice to be around and absorbed. And, and so, you know, is, as difficult as death is, one, let's all hope we make it to 90, but two, uh, to be able to go there for what was a sad occasion that turned celebratory and that turned positive. I mean, you know, when we got on our plane that night, we were so fortunate that we had the time and the ability to, to go out there for it, but also our, our, our cup was refilled. Our cup was refilled of the promise of what all of these folks are doing and what they'll continue to do. Steve, thank you for getting back on, um, you know, this conversation with me because it was so important that we spend time uh, talking about uh, the Senator's life and legacy. And as you so beautifully pointed out, legends don't do it alone. Uh, staff is a part of their story. And I really appreciate your part of that of, of that larger story. And I know you're very humble about it and Tamar's and all of those who serve the senator and the country or their locality in so many different ways. So thank you. Thank you, Jim. Always, always a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for everything you continue to do. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. 
please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.